WP Talk, the Wealth Professional Podcast. Institutional investors have relied on private markets to diversify their portfolios. McKinsey recently launched Canada's first interval fund, a breakthrough innovation that expands access to private credit to virtually every investor. The Interval Fund, only at McKenzie. Visit mckenzieinvestments.com innovation to learn more. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees and expenses all may be associated with investment funds. Please read the prospectus before investing. Investment funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Hello everyone and welcome to the latest edition of WP Talk. I'm your host, James Burton, Managing Editor of Wealth Professional Canada. For this episode, it's my pleasure to welcome Tyler Mordy, CEO and CIO of Four Strong Global Asset Management. He agreed to an impromptu chat on the same day his firm announced the acquisition of Shaughnessy Investment Council. We discussed the deal, how it came about, and what advisors can expect from an enhanced Forstrong. We then turned our attention to the invasion of Ukraine, and as a global macro investor, to say this is in Morty's wheelhouse would be an understatement. First up, though, is the acquisition. We're speaking on the day uh, that Forstrong has announced the acquisition of Shaughnessy Investment Council. Um, so first of all, thanks for, thanks for chatting to me, Tyler, and obviously fan- congratulations on the, on the acquisition. Oh, thank you so much, James, and thanks for having us. Um, you know, basically, why... Why was this a good move for you and what attracted you, you to Shaughnessy? Yeah, so we've been big fans of Shaughnessy for, for some time. It's, it's run by uh, two gentlemen named Terry Shaughnessy and James Garcelon. And, um, you know, business textbooks teach us that most mergers do not work. And now this is an acquisition, but I, in my mind, I look at it as a merger. But most mergers do, do not work simply because the... Um, you know, the ambition of the business team or the management team, you know, they just want to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And and so I think an, an issue with wealth management companies is that they'll just, you know, they'll travel along the highway and throw in a bunch of companies in, in the, the, the rear seat. And then you've got this discombobulated group of companies. Now we've, the, the neat thing about Shaughnessy is they started the very same year that we started all the way back in 2001. And they had a very similar investment philosophy. They also, uh, you know, felt that the ETF vehicle would kind of change the nature of the landscape as well in the, in the portfolio management business, which they were right. And um, so we've been kind of these, you know, I poetically say we've been these parallel lines going along and, you know, looking over the fence and saying, mm, I like that firm. Um, and and so we've, we've kind of evolved in, in, you know, different paths in terms of the clients we serve and that type of thing. But we've had the, we've had this shared investment philosophy. So I think going back to my comments about mergers and acquisitions, we really, you know, as a management team, we really wanted to find a firm that had that shared investment philosophy. And that way you don't have this, this disjointed, like we've got an investment team that we, that we run. I'm the chief investment officer and we really wanted it to be sort of a, an extension of what we've already done rather than a, an entirely new thing and, and running, you know, two separate uh, strategies and all that type of thing. So, you know, Terry is, is going to join the investment committee. And James um, will replace me as the president. I'll stay on as CEO and CIO. So I'll still, we kind of jokingly refer to it. James will be the inside guy and I'll be the outside guy. And, um, you know, for me, that does free up a lot of time to focus more on the investment management side and the business development side. Been uh, greater respect for for um, 
Terry and James and, you know, the people involved there. So it was, it was, you know, but, you know, we can't sugarcoat acquisitions. They, they can be arduous at times. <laughs> so how, how will it benefit uh, your advisors and clients? Um, you know, what's, what impact is this going to have uh, on Forstrong? And I know you've mentioned in the release about, you know, um, in, enhancing the depth of, of, of your talent, investment talent, and the ability to scale. What, what will advisors see um, now this has happened? Yeah, and that's a good question too. Like, I mean, I, I like to phrase it more as an yeah, additional bank, bench strength, an extension of what we've already done. So we're not changing our investment philosophy. We're not changing our process, but we do get, um, you know, some very talented individuals with high pedigree that join the firm. And so for me, you know, and for, for the clients in particular, um, listening to this, um, Terry will join the investment committee. He brings, you know, many decades of experience that brings our total, uh, uh, global investing experience on our investment team to over two centuries, if you can believe it. <laughs> so over two centuries of global investing experience. So, and Terry's already joined the committee and we've had our first meeting and, they, and I can already tell he's bringing uh, more depth. And, you know, remember with Forstrong, the, the the whole vision of this firm is to have a investment team that brings uh, a wide angle view of, of the world. And, and so our, our hiring process is all, also focused on bringing in people with different personalities, different cultural backgrounds, all those types of things. And we've, we've been um, fortunate to be able to do that over the last few years. So on the investment side, I think you, you, you know, you can expect an extension of what we're doing. We're not changing anything, but there is, there is another member of the team that's, that brings uh, incredible depth. And then, you know, on the operational side, um, James Garcelon, I mean, he is, he is, he's completely, born for this in terms of uh, the the business operations and compliance functions and financials and that type of thing. And so we, we have a very strong uh, president now and a president that's more operations focused. And so uh, particularly for my own role, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited because I get relieved of a lot of those duties and I get to do go back into my, what I call my zone of genius, which is, um, you know, managing the money, leading the, the investment team. And then, you know, um, uh, peripherally doing the, the business development as well. So um, I, I think, you know, clients can expect um, you know, more of the same, but more bench strength. And then the neat thing is they they do bring a real dimension to our institutional channel. So I love the feedback we get from our institutions because it sort of informs the investment views as well. So, you know, for example, but it just, you know, in general, James, um, it was just really good you know, as I say, shared shared values and complementary skill sets, and good personnel fit, good you know philosophy. So me for me, it's all about like first, do they fit culturally? Do they fit in terms of values and, and philosophy? And if they do, then there's there's a there's a story that we we can run with. And so it's been some time that we've been looking at this firm, and we're we're thrilled to declare that it has closed, and they're part of our our team now. Okay, for for those listeners who uh, have not. Uh, being part of an acquisition, how, how does it how does it work? You know, who who approaches who? How how long has it taken um, both the firms to get to this point? For example, oh yeah, that's a good question. Actually, well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure every acquisition or merger is has got its own flavor and, and differences. But um, you know, the 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 first thing you do is you you kind of go on this dating process, if you will, and you explore ways that you can work together and what the the actual structure of the deal might be. And so that would take the form of a, a share purchase agreement, or first you do a letter of intent that you, you know, both management teams aim to do something, and then you're working up to a share purchase agreement. So you're kind of, you know, you're debating terms and and all that kind of thing. And 
So that's, you know, that can be an enjoyable process and, and also an unenjoyable process at the same time too, because there's, you know, you're dealing with, um, you know, after that stage, you're dealing with uh, uh, legal counsel and regulators and all that kind of stuff. And you, you have to go through the right channels and, um, you know, some of those stages can be delightful and others can just be a, a long process. So uh, we, um, you know, it, it, it does take some time. So I, we started this in um, before the summer last year. And, you know, for those, as you said, who have not been through those process, you think you, you know, everyone's ambitious. We can get it done in three months. It usually takes about six months from start to finish, depending on the, the thing. So, but um, the, the, the neat thing about um, these types of things too, and I've, I've been through this in another um, a sale of a business channel with, with Four Strong, is that you really get to know the players involved. So you're dealing, you know, you're, you're coming to mutually agreed upon terms and our, our style has always been like, you don't beat the other person up and then hope to have a good working relationship after that. You, you really try to um, find, a, find a deal that works for both parties and sets up, importantly, sets up the incentives that the other party is incentivized to grow the business too. So there's some features of the deal in there that, that do incentivize them on future growth. You don't want to just buy a firm and then just say, you know, goodbye. We really want to set up the right incentives for, for everybody involved. So we did do that, I think, successfully, and and I, I gained an example. Um, you may have a client that's uh, you know is a large pension fund or something like that, and and the needs and the uh, unique constraints and all that kind of thing do kind of inform you. Like for example, right now, a lot of institutions are struggling with at least those ones who have had conservative investment um, policy statements. They're they're really struggling with okay, I used to have this conservative position. I only have to earn, let's say it's 3% a year for my pension plan. And I used to do that with fixed income, like government bonds, and how, how I, I can no longer squeeze uh, 3% out of that mandate. So what 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 kind of uh, different investment classes and that type of thing can we look at? And so there's, this, there's sort of this uh, symbiotic relationship you have with your clients too that actually inform you about um, you know different worldviews and that type of thing. So our institutional channel will be um, much larger because Shaughnessy's business is one third institutional. And then we're also moving into the high net worth space with, um, you know, they've serviced uh, some, some very wealthy families for the last two decades here. And so that's also a, a you know, a different, uh, you know, a different um, investment service in many ways. Now you mentioned you've had your first investment meeting. I'm guessing, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Ukraine was probably on the agenda. Um, so I, I'd like to sort of get some of your insights on that, um, Tyler. I mean, before we dive into maybe some of the investment implications, just your general reaction um, to to what's happened. It's obviously a huge seismic event in Europe, but um, this is this is real real history as as, as we're living, right? Yeah, no, I mean, the investment sessions have been particularly, I mean, I, I, I'd be lying if I didn't say they're draining because you've got the prospect of World War III hanging over the session. So they've been, you know, we stick to our process, but they've been definitely draining. And uh, we just released a piece this morning um, called Putin's War, the week a decade happened. And of course, that that goes back to the quote many of you will know um, from from Lenin who was the sort of the, the first and founding head of the Soviet Union who delivered the, I think the most memorable and deadly one liner that says there are decades when nothing happens and there are weeks when decades happen. So over the last few weeks, a, a decade has indeed happened. And if you actually look at what Putin has successfully done, like a, a man that Trump once described as a strategic genius, he's sort of managed to revitalize NATO. He's unified a splintered West. He, he's turned Ukraine's 
you know, very little known president to a global hero. He's totally destroyed Russia's economy and he's solidified his legacy as a, as a, you know, war criminal. And so we think that's a huge miscalculation. I think what's going on right now is, is, um, tragic, but it's also encouraging the sense that you've never seen such a swift and, um, punishing response. And, you know, we can debate the efficacy of sanctions on the economy and that type of thing, but it, it definitely does cripple, um, Putin in particular, his, his ability to push his, his agenda forward. So the, you know, that's just, a, that's just an opening comment in terms of, um, what's going on, James. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, I think in the, your previous piece, um, you obviously mentioned that there's no winners in war, but when it comes to investing, you know, war means winners and losers. So, you know, this might be a bit yeah. of a crude question, but I mean, who's, what's winning, who's winning right now and, and, and who's losing? Yeah, no, I mean, when I was telling the sales team this morning, the, you know, this crisis has been almost a litmus test for new leadership, new investment leadership. Now, if you go back before Russia invaded uh, Ukraine on February 24th, um, we had been suggesting that there was a, an investment leadership change going on in the market. And what we mean by that is that the the leaders that were you've seen over the last 10 years, particularly the 2010s, which was, you know, the US dollar was strong, uh, US large cap growth stocks and technology stocks were extremely strong, chronically so. We felt that had been changing even prior to the invasion. And so the invasion, I think, um, revealed the durability of this new investment leadership. And so, you know, when you, when back to our, our comment from the previous publication, there's, there's no winners in war, but there's, there are winners and losers in the, um, investment landscape. The, the early winners, of course, are the countries that have, uh, as close of a similar economic makeup to Russia as, as possible. So we've seen Canada win, but, you know, that's a sort of in, in front of us in terms of Canadian investors. But you look at, um, countries that have truly won and you look to Latin America and you see countries like Chile, which is the largest copper export in the world. You look at Brazil, huge, uh, exporter of food and, and that type of thing. So the closer they are to the Russian economy, the more they have won through this. And, you know, we're, we're seeing these emerging markets up like 20, 25% year to date. Whereas you've seen the technology sector in a, in a true bear, like the NASDAQs in a total bear market. I think it's clear that the, um, that leadership is over. And so there's, there's some, and I, I, I love these tests. It's, it's almost like a, it's, it's like a global stress test, if you will, to go through this. And, um, we will see different leadership change, but I think, um, the durability of these new trends that we've been positioned for already are, are well into play. And this just kind of builds on the momentum. So from a portfolio perspective, how do you, how do you hedge against this invasion or how, how do you, how do you position now? to to benefit as best you can again that sounds distasteful but yeah i think you know what i mean yeah yeah no 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 i mean it is always a little uh what's the right word you know there's sensitivities i guess you could right. say with we're yeah. talking about profiting from war but i mean we we are paid to do this and we're trying to protect um clients hard-earned money so i mean this is another thing that goes back to the stress test so normally in a crisis like this you would see the u.s dollar skyrocket you would see government bonds rally. Um, you'd see, you know, there's a variety of different things that are sort of traditional hedges. Now, those have been horrible hedges um, throughout the crisis, and so this 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 builds on our our leadership change. We we do think that along with the moving away from the Nasdaq to sort of commodity exporting countries and international value stocks, um, 
you know, the hedges will change. The, the building a balanced portfolio will will become more tricky because we used to just rely on government bonds. And and you know, we're not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's still some attractions of government bonds, but you've got a rate hiking cycle in the West. You've got um, um, you know headwinds in terms of inflation, slowing growth, that type of thing in the West. And here you have hedges that are you know little known hedges, but I think the more pressure the sanctions put on Russia, the more it cripples their export markets, and the more the these these economies like Chile and Brazil, just to point out two again, uh, will do well. So you know it's a non traditional definition of a portfolio hedge. But ironically, um, one has to go look further afield and go to different uh, investment classes that you may not have looked at um, so tip- so typically as, as hedges. So it's 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 a strange world. Like, a, and I I wrote in that last publication, just the world has been kind of turned upside down uh, in the matter of uh, two three weeks here. And so we're we're building portfolios that we think can you know withstand the shocks of this this modern and, and very differentiated world. Yeah. Um, and it sort of obviously follows hot on the heels of of the pandemic. I mean, um, more more market shocks. I mean, obviously, it's impossible. You know, I don't have a crystal ball, but this this war. Are you sort of anticipating that it's going to be lengthy, or are the impacts of it going to be lengthy as well? Yeah, I mean, it's it's very. I mean, there's there's so many scenarios that could evolve here. We do think Putin has made a gross miscalculation. And I mean, we can see that already in, in early evidence, but, you know, I think it's, it's, it's too hard to call what ultimately will, will happen there. Um, but I, I think maybe the, maybe the, the comment we made in the, the research report we put out this morning is risks are now far lower than prior to the Russian invasion, because in markets, um, you know, risks that are known risks get priced in. And so the market's trying to, we're, we're in this hugely volatile period. And that includes like the Chinese market and every, every other market, this hugely volatile market. And, you know, the market's trying to find some sort of equilibrium and, and price in the, the, the probable risks. And so, you know, we're actually at a moment, James, in a, that, that shares many similarities to uh, March, 2020 during the, the panic of, of COVID. And it's, it's, you know, it's a completely different set of circumstances, of course, but if you look at and you know in our investment process, if you look at any of the sentiment surveys, or you know Bank of America has this big fund manager survey, which tends to be interpreted as a sort of a contrarian indicator, but it shows it came out last uh, Thursday. It shows that global growth optimism is at its lowest level since July two thousand eight, like the, the midst of the global financial crisis, two months before Lehman collapsed. And so to, to us, what we do as, as investors, we say, okay, well, we're probably a good chunk of the way into pricing in these risks, you know, at least from a broad base perspective. And when you have that much panic, um, there's going to be some indiscriminate selling, of course. People just kind of sell things and then ask questions later. It's World War III, they sell everything and they make huge portfolio mistakes. And so we're kind of like, you know, there's a bad pun, but we're sifting through the rubble, if, uh, so to speak, of the, of the, um, carnage we see in, in, in portfolios and, and looking at what, you know, what are those durable themes? And so, you know, pointing back to the, you know, the international stocks, the, the value oriented stocks, all those types of things uh, we think have, have good legs. And they also function as sort of non-traditional hedges that, that we talked about before. And so, you know, I wrote the last line here in this publication this morning, if another decade happens next week, portfolios will still be well insulated against market shocks, given that we've already, 
you know, we've already seen how they function in the, in those crisis periods, at least, you know, in the recent times. So, you know, again, looking at things differently and, and trying to understand where, where risk is priced and understanding the nature of risk. Now we, we, we could be wrong and it could be, you know, we could have this world war three scenario, but again, I think if you think about markets, like an ecosystem, if you suppress one economy somewhere, then something else is going to spring up in another place. And so it's, I think, I think right now is time for like, you know, this sounds cliche, but wide global diversification. Um, a lot of people are getting pretty um, pleased with the, the TSX's performance, but that's, that's one way to play it. But we would encourage investors to, you know, that's a good starting point, but it, it's not just oil that's constrained in, in Russia. It's, it's, uh, you know, wheat and copper and nickel and you name it. And so taking that broad-based approach, I think, um, really avoids the, the, potentially big mistakes that one could make through periods like this that are, you know, understandably super emotional. Thanks for joining us for this episode of WP Talk. For more WP Talk episodes, please go to wealthprofessional.ca, click on the resources tab and select WP Talk. The site also includes all the latest news and views from the industry. And if you haven't already, feel free to sign up to our daily newsletter. I'm James Burton. Until next time.